be with you all on this July 4th, uh, Happy Independence Day. Hopefully you with kids uh, were able to sleep through the fireworks. Um, I think our kids only got up a couple times, so someone said it sounded like a war zone in their area, so hopefully it wasn't that bad for you all. Um, yeah, it's just a joy to be with you all. And I'm reminded this morning that we come to worship God, right, and commune with Him, that that's why we're here, and that throughout the week, everything in the world around us tells us uh, what we should worship, right? We should worship things, our comfort, money, all these other things that we are tempted to worship, and each week we come together and we're reminded not only of who God is, but what He's done. So, if you want to stand with me? And we'll begin this morning with a call to worship, taken from Psalm 148, which is actually the psalm that our first song is based on. I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me in the non-bold. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, Son of Praise Him. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Hallelujah. 
If you would all pray with me this prayer of confession, please. Heavenly Father, you are the creator and sustainer of all things. You commanded and it came to be. Enthroned in heaven, high and lifted up. And yet, in our pride and arrogance, we think we can work our way up to you. That our works and endeavors can merit salvation. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, for the sake of Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to humble ourselves and look to Christ. Amen. You please remain standing and turn to hymn number 150. We have a new song today. Oh, yeah. When I survey the wondrous cross.
We don't go too far in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22, it reads, very familiar story. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillow and poured oil on the top. He called the name of that place Bethel. <clears throat> but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tent to you. We're lucky this morning to be joined by Stephen Lawrence and his wife Courtney from Exodus PCA in Springfield. So we're going to have them come up. Um, this is a church plant that's going on right now in the Springfield area. They had their first preview service last week. Um, these are brothers and sisters in Christ doing great work out there, spreading the gospel. Uh, Stephen's actually going to be preaching here in a couple months, so... Um, but I just want to have him come up and give a quick update and how we can pray for you. So. Absolutely. My wife, Courtney, and my son is back there. He's <laughs> um, Grateful to be here and to be able to worship with you guys. I, I appreciate the work that the Lord is doing over here. Uh, we, we moved to Springfield, I guess, back in at the tail end of October to plant a church. We kind of parachuted into Springfield. I'm kind of from Peoria area, didn't know much about Springfield, received a call to go plant a church there. It's been on the radar for our denomination for quite a while. No church planters presented themselves. I just said, hey, um, I, I'm willing to go where, where God would take us. And so he made it clear, Springfield uh, got to town just in time for really the lockdowns from COVID to start happening. As you can imagine, 
when you're doing a scratch plant, uh, so much of the work is just building relationships and networking and meeting folks, Christian, non-Christian, being out in the mix, uh, and learning the city, how does Springfield uh, feel, uh, ecclesiastically, just theologically, where are people at? All of that stuff, you can imagine, a bit difficult on the front end uh, when there's lockdowns, not being able to meet people out in person, but the Lord was faithful through so much of that. Uh, eventually, you know, God provided other other friends that connected me and, and uh, just began just a lot of the relational work. Eventually, we started a Bible study in our living room, and God, that began to grow a little bit. We started doing what I call vision nights. Uh, we met at a, a restaurant in town. Hey, here's the vision of this church. Uh, kind of just scattered a lot of the invites to that, and uh, it was a blessing seeing folks come out of the, some, in some ways out of the woodwork, not knowing much. Others kind of got a feel for the, the direction of the church, and, um, and so there's been kind of overlap for those. And when we felt like, you know, it seems like there's a bit of a critical mass now, well, let's begin to have these preview services. So we, just as Kendall mentioned a second ago, this last Sunday was a, was a pretty defining moment in the life of our uh, church. We had our first preview service, and um, it went really, really well. We, we felt like uh, a lot of folks there walked away feeling blessed and encouraged about the work that the Lord is doing, and so grateful for that. We have three more preview services this summer. And Lord willing, launching the church in the fall for just ongoing church as we would know it, as you guys are doing. So that's the that's where we are as a church plant. We we are privileged to have you pray for us and grateful for even just this moment to uh, to lift up the, the plant in, in prayer. A couple of prayer requests. Uh, we're looking for a location for ongoing. We have a kind of a temporary solution right now that we're grateful for that maybe has a potential to go on into the fall. But if you could pray for a location, it's such a big deal uh, for, for our plan. That would be great. And looking also for a children's minister, someone who just has a heart and is, is willing, willing to kind of get in there and, and, and just kind of create our children's ministry. Uh, that's, that's another huge purpose, is obviously children matter a ton. So those are two really big, big ones. And, you know, there's obviously kind of just the, the nature of the church. A lot of evangelism is beginning to kind of start happening. And, um, and so depending on the Lord to open hearts and to, to change hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and working through the gospel. So. Amen. And we'll, we'll pray for Stephen and Exodus. Lord, we thank you for this time we get to set aside each week to worship you and rest in Christ. And we thank you for... Uh, all the freedoms that you've given us that we're blessed to have in this country that we can come and, and worship you freely, free from persecution, and it's a great blessing, Lord, and we have much to be thankful for, and we should never take it for granted, Lord, but uh, we thank you even more for the grace that you've given us in Christ that surpasses all those things. And uh, we just lift up Exodus uh, Church in Springfield. We pray that you would be with Stephen and his family and any attacks that they might be facing. We pray that you would um, just strengthen them in your word and by your spirit. We pray for a building, a location where they can meet and worship you. We pray for a children's minister to come to lead that effort and also just for people to come and hear the gospel that souls might be saved and a church might be grown to your glory, Lord. 
We love you and we just thank you for all the things that you're doing in so many bodies around the world. We lift them up um, today and we just ask for your hand and your spirit to help us. In your name we pray. The scripture in Genesis, what was that, 11? Where they're building this tower of Babel. Keep that in mind as we're reading this, uh, answering this. How are you made right with God? The answer, if you would read along with me, is only, only by, by true faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. Even, Even though, though my conscience accuses me of having sinned against all God's commandments, and never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Amen. If you want to open up your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, we'll be continuing through John chapter 1. We'll be finishing John chapter 1 today, Lord. We'll be covering more verses than we have through this whole um, study, so should be interesting. But so far in John, we've seen a lot of things. We've gone through the prologue, but we talked at the beginning about John's kind of thesis statement or his purpose statement for why he wrote this gospel. All the way in John chapter 20, he says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That everything that we're studying in this book from the smallest sentence to the largest discourse, it's all written for the same purpose, so that we might believe and have life. Not a life that we have just by nature of being alive, but eternal life, as John will go on to say. And so the last couple weeks we've looked at John the Baptist, and we've seen him questioned by these religious leaders, and then we've seen him testify to who Jesus is. That's what we saw last week. He said, this is the Lamb of God. He's actually going to say it again this week. He said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so last week we saw sort of the beginning of Christ's public ministry. That he's baptized, the Spirit descends on him. And we said this was imagery of the Messiah. The Messiah would be this one that had the Spirit rest upon him. And that would go proclaim the good news, this special anointed servant of the Lord. And so today, we're going to look at verses 35 through the end to 51. And we're going to see this sort of transition take place. That John's ministry, as we learned a couple weeks ago, is about Christ. He's a voice. He's a pointer. He's just saying, it's not about me. <laughs> it's about Christ. And so we're going to see that transition take place today from John the Baptist 
to Jesus in his ministry. That John's job was to prepare the way. He was a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And that's what he was. And we're going to see today that Jesus is wholly different than John. <laughs> what he's able to do, the way he interacts with these disciples, is wholly different than the way John does. We'll see it in the way that he calls the disciples and these assertions that Jesus makes about himself. And so hopefully we'll see that today. So I'm going to read the passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at our text. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard him, heard John speak, and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word and your spirit that... We have a great hope this morning that you've not left us to our own devices, you've not left us to find our own way, but you've given us not only your word, but your spirit. And may this morning you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the glory of Christ and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. So lots of verses this morning, um, and lots to talk about. So the, the outline this morning will be pretty basic. There will be two points. 
from verse 35 to 49, we'll see the disciples divinely called. And then in verses 50 through 51, we'll see Christ's divinity shown. So we'll see the disciples divinely called by Christ, and then we'll see Christ's divinity shown. So we pick up at verse 35. And again, it says, the next day. So we've talked about how John has used this several times in verse 29, verse 35. We see it again in verse 43, the next day. So this is after the events that we talked about last week. And we see these two disciples of John the Baptist standing with John. And he says to them, Behold the Lamb of God. So he had said it the day before, and he says it again today, Behold the Lamb of God. And these two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now we know from the context, if we go down and look a little bit further, we see that one of those disciples is Andrew, but we don't find out who the other disciple is. And many commentators have speculated that this is John, the writer of the letter, this, this gospel. Often in John's gospel, he doesn't refer to himself by name. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or all these other things. And so we can, we can guess that this is probably John, the writer of this gospel. So we have Andrew and John. They hear John the Baptist testify, witness to who Jesus is, behold the Lamb of God, and they leave John, and they follow Jesus immediately. And from John's perspective, we see that he's not worried at all about getting the most amount of followers that he can. He's not worried about getting as many people around him as he can. He's about pointing to Christ. And so from the beginning, we can almost imagine him having talked to his disciples about this one to come. We actually see in the verses just before this, he says, one's going to come after me that ranks before me. That his whole ministry has been about pointing to this one to come. He has come. The true Passover lamb is here. And we see the disciples follow Christ. And this would have been somewhat uncommon for the day. It wasn't like just following and unfollowing someone on social media. <laughs> it wasn't like a button click, right? Your whole life was around following your rabbi, this one that you learned from. And so for John's disciples to just follow Christ would have been a big life event. It would have been a big thing for them. And so they upheaved their whole lives, and now they're following Jesus. And so we can begin to see this transition from John the Baptist's ministry to Christ, from the forerunner to the Messiah. So John has prepared the way, he's prepared his disciples, he said, one's going to come, and now they are following Jesus. And then Jesus, <laughs> it's kind of funny, he sees people are following him, <laughs> and so he asks them, what are you seeking? Which is sort of an odd question if we think about it a little bit. It's a really simple question. And yet, it's sort of a probing question, right? Obviously, in one sense, they're following Jesus because of who he is. John's just said, this is the Lamb of God. But yet, John, Jesus is asking, "Why? what are you seeking? Why are you following me, in one sense? And so, in one sense, it's a probing question. It's probing deeper than just a surface-level answer. We see this come up in a couple places in John's Gospel. In John chapter 2... It says that Jesus didn't need anybody to bear witness to him about what was in man. That Jesus can see the intentions and desires of man's heart. So he knows, in a sense, 
what they're seeking, but yet he asked this question. We see later in John chapter 5, there's a, a man that's paralyzed for 38 years, and he's been trying to get into this pool, and Jesus asked him this question, do you want to be healed? Which is sort of a strange question to ask to a man that's paralyzed for 38 years and trying to, trying to get into this pool of water. And yet Jesus asked this question. He's sort of probing. We see again in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Mary sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. And he says to her, who are you seeking? Almost the same language. And so there's these questions that Jesus asks that are probing. He's trying to get to the heart of the issue. And so we can almost ask ourselves this question. We should almost be asking ourselves as if we're these disciples. What are we seeking? What are we trying to find? Why are we following Jesus, if you will? These are questions that John the Apostle wants us to ask. And so we see that the disciples both call him rabbi, which means teacher, and they both want to be where he is. We see them ask, where are you staying? It's getting dark. We want to we come ask you more questions. We want to stay with you. And so we see these disciples long to be where Christ is. And so they, they go and stay with Jesus for one night. And they stay with him. And then in verse 40, it picks up. We see that Andrew goes and finds his brother, Peter. He finds his brother Peter, and he says this amazing phrase. He says, we have found the Messiah. We found the Christ. So whatever Jesus was talking about them with, or whatever they saw, they realized that this was no mere man. That this was the Messiah. The one promised in the Old Testament that this is the Christ. The Messiah. And Jesus looks at Peter sorry, Simon rather, and he acknowledges who he is. He says, you are Simon, the son of John. And then he says this, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That in this moment, Jesus changes Peter's name. He says, you're going to be called this. Peter means rock. He's changing his name. This is not just a nickname that Jesus has for Peter. It's not like a pet name, you know, like we come, sometimes we call Andrew Drew or whatever. It's not that. It's not a nickname. He's saying something more than that. That in this culture, your name was what people, the qualities or the character that someone wanted someone to have. When you named your child, you were thinking about what you wanted your child to grow up to be, the characters or quality that you wanted to see in that person. And so Jesus here, in changing Peter's name, is not just saying, this is a fun nickname for you. And he's not even just saying, these are qualities I see in you, because he just met him. <laughs> There's no qualities he could see, he just met him. What he's saying is, Peter, this is what you will be. You will be Peter. You will be the rock. You will be this one, this one that professes me as Lord on whom I will build the church. And even though, as we read the Gospel of John, Peter will go on to deny our Lord three times. So, it's like, Jesus, did you make a mistake? Did you mess up? Did you not see this? But we know through John's Gospel that Jesus prays for Peter, and by the end of John's Gospel, he restores him three times and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
And so Peter's restored, and if you look at the book of Acts, we see Peter be the one to proclaim this great news of Christ raised from the dead. And so it's just very interesting that the only words that we see here regarding Peter is Jesus changing his name, saying, this is what you will be. And then in verse 43, it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So not only do we see Jesus decide to go to Galilee, but he decides to find Philip. And then he says these words to him, follow me. And we see that Philip follows Christ. And again, it's just sort of strange, right? He's changing people's names. He's telling people that he just met, follow me, right? And so we can see Christ's utter uniqueness, that he's not just a mere man, that he's changing people's names. He's telling things about people that they don't even know. And he's calling them to follow him, that this is not just a mere man, this is the Christ. That he seeks Peter out, and he says, follow me. That Philip might have had something going on in his life. He could have said to Jesus, sorry, I'm really busy right now, I don't have time for this whole Messiah thing. No, he follows him, he follows Christ. And we we read later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, they know me, and they follow me. That Philip is a sheep. He is following Christ. He hears the good shepherd's voice, and he follows him. And later on in John 15, Jesus speaks to the disciples, and he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. So we see this divine initiative of Christ, that he's not a mere man, he's on a mission. As the one mediator between God and man, he's come to seek and to save the lost. That he's seeking out his sheep, calling them, and they follow him. And then we see in verse 45, Philip says to Nathanael, we have found him. We found him. We found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke. That these people, the disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they had a messianic consciousness. They had an expectation that the Messiah would come. And so they were looking in the law and in the prophets in the Old Testament, looking forward to this Messiah to come, this promised one, this promised King, Jesus of Nazareth. And I love Nathaniel's (laughs) question that he says. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he's so honest about it. He's like, can anything good come out of there? I don't know why. I'm sorry if anybody's from Blue Mound, but that's what I think of. Like, <laughs> can anything good come out of Blue Mound, right? This small town, this, this town where there's nothing there, right? Can anything good come out of there? Not that he's necessarily prejudiced toward them, but he's just saying, it's so small, it's so insignificant. Can anything good or grand, can the Messiah come out of Nazareth He's honest. He's open about this. He was born in this lowly place. And so we're reminded that Christ is not only the great king, but he's the lowborn king. He came to nothing. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born into a ruling kingdom that he is the lowborn king. And we see Philip here 
sort of mirror the words of Jesus in verse 46. He says, come and see. He doesn't try to argue with him. He just says, come. Behold the Christ and be convinced. And so we pick up in verse 47. Jesus sees Nathanael and he says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus is saying these things about Nathanael, these qualities, these characteristics that he sees in him, even though he's never met him. And people will speculate and say, is Jesus saying that Nathanael has no sin, that he's sinless, that he's this perfect person? We know from books like Job and even the early parts of Luke that sometimes people are referred to as being righteous, right? Job was a righteous man. In the beginning of Luke, we see these people like Simeon that are called upright. They're looking forward to the Messiah. And so this is not talking about sinlessness, but that Nathaniel is one that's upright. He's looking forward to this Messiah. And again, Nathaniel's really honest. He's like, how do you know me? <laughs> He's been cut open. He sees that this Christ is not just a mere man. He is able to perceive things about him. It's almost as if he knows him. That he not only sees his heart, but he can even see where Nathaniel is. And we see that in the next verse. Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. That this is not a mere, like, hey, when you're over there, I saw you. This is a divine knowledge that Christ has of Nathaniel's whereabouts. And we know that it's a divine, miraculous knowledge because of what Nathaniel says. He goes from being skeptical to proclaiming these great truths about Christ. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That this is not, again, a mere man. That Christ has divine knowledge, not only of Nathaniel's heart, but his whereabouts, where he is. And he knows Nathaniel in a way that leads Nathaniel to say, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So we see all these messianic titles assigned to Christ in this passage. We see Andrew say, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. We've seen Philip say, we found the one in whom the law and the prophets were. We've seen Nathaniel confess that he's the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus' next couple statements are very interesting. They're very interesting. That he almost tempers Nathaniel's statement a minute. He doesn't deny what Nathaniel says, but he again tries to get to the heart, the motivation of why Nathaniel said these things. That so far we've seen Jesus ask questions of his disciples, change their name, call people that he didn't know to follow him, and they followed him. We've even seen him have divine knowledge about where someone's at before he could even see them. And yet, in these verses, we see Jesus assert something about himself that is profound. And he sort of tempers what, what Nathaniel says here. And I was thinking about it. I saw this video one time of this guy that stood outside of a theater. I don't know, it's Hollywood or somewhere. And he would wait for people to come out, and he would say, I'm having some thoughts about you. You know, like I'm, I'm seeing things about your life. And he would tell them these 
very specific things about their life. Like, I see a yellow Hummer, you know, and these people would be amazed. Like, how do you know? Or the uh, uh, details about their house or their children and the names of their children. And these people were blown away. And they were amazed at what he said. And by the end of the video, you see that he had just used the geolocation on their Instagram and was able to find out that they were in that theater, Facebook stalked them, whatever, and saw all these things and pretended like he knew things about them. And they were convinced in their mind that he was this, you know, clairvoyant or whatever. Clearly, Jesus obviously knew these things, but I think the reason that Christ is saying these things, because he says, I saw you under the fig tree and you believe because of that, you'll see greater things. He's saying, don't be deceived by these superficial things, right? I saw you over here. I did that thing. Not discrediting what Christ did there, but we'll see in verse 51 that Jesus is trying to point Nathaniel not to superficial things like where he was, but to Christ, to himself, that he's the Messiah. And so we read these words in verse 51. Truly, truly. Jesus is saying, listen. <laughs> truly, truly. This is the important part. Listen to this. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there's three things to point out about this verse here. First, we see that Jesus says that his disciples will see the heavens opened. That this is Old Testament imagery of divine revelation coming to God's people. We see this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. It says the heavens were opened up, and Ezekiel receives this revelation from God, these visions. We also saw in the other gospel accounts that at Christ's baptism, the heavens were opened up, and the Father speak and say, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So this is divine revelation imagery. And then we say, Jesus say these words, and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending. And we're like, what does this mean? <laughs> I don't remember that account in the Gospels <laughs> where these angels are going up and down on Jesus. You know, what are you talking about here, Christ? But this, as we saw in our liturgy this morning, this is a reference to Genesis 28, where Jacob, in a dream, has a vision of a ladder or a staircase, some translations say, that connects heaven to earth, on which these angels are ascending and descending, going up and down. And it's a very interesting passage. We see this access point between heaven and earth. These angels are going up and down, this connection point. Jacob goes on to call it Bethel, which means the house of God, this gateway of heaven. And so what Jesus here is saying is he's connecting himself to that Old Testament passage. He's saying, I am the ladder. I am the one on whom angels will ascend and descend. I'm the access point between heaven and earth, this link between God and man. But not only that, he says that he calls himself this title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That in these words, he is referencing back to another Old Testament passage, namely Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, 
where it says, I saw one like a son of man came on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, and he was given a kingdom whose kingdom will have no end, and a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so Jesus here is saying all these things, this place of divine revelation, this ladder, this access point between God and man, this divine messianic figure, the Son of Man, I am that. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you're going to see heaven opened up for, the one mediator between God and man. This is me. I am that one. And so Jesus ends with these words, and we don't see any explanation given. And so as we come to the close of our passage today, a couple things to sort of take away, ways to, how do we understand this passage? How do we apply it to our lives? couple things this morning. First, hopefully it's clear that the Old Testament is about Jesus, right? That the Old Testament is about Christ. That it is a messianic document. It's not namely about Abraham or Israel or the people of the Old Testament. It is ultimately pointing to the Christ to come. It is pointing to the Christ to come. And the New Testament is testifying that he has come. It's witnessing, bearing witness that what was promised in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And we saw this morning that these disciples understood that. That in this passage we see them make these massive messianic statements about Jesus. Right? They're not just saying he's a good teacher or he's a good moral guide, they're saying he's the Messiah. He's the one that's come to save us from our sins. That they read the Old Testament, they understood what it was pointing forward to. And yet, we see that even though they have this great knowledge, they will go on through this gospel to doubt Jesus, to sin, to even deny Christ three times in the case of Peter. And I think sometimes we can think to ourselves that in order to come to God, in order to be a perfect disciple, we have to know everything about God. And that we have to never have doubts, never have failings, never have sin. And we see that these disciples, even though they're claiming great things about God, throughout, God's, throughout this Gospel of John, they will doubt, they will sin, they will deny things about Jesus. And this is true even after the resurrection. If you go to John chapter 20, Jesus has been crucified. He died a horrible death on the cross. He's buried in the tomb, the stone is rolled over it. And on the third day, on Sunday, the disciples come to the tomb and it's empty. And his whole ministry, he'd been telling them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. <laughs> and they go to the tomb, and they're still confused. They see it's empty, and they doubt, even after Christ's resurrection. And Mary herself comes. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, and she's sad. She's weeping. She's, in a sense, doubting. She doesn't understand. Where is my Lord? Where have they laid him? 
And in verse 15, we see this interaction between Jesus and Mary in John chapter 20. She doesn't recognize him. And he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. That there's almost this parallel account in John's Gospel. What happened in John chapter 1? Jesus asked his disciples this question, what are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? We see him ask the same question of Mary. We see the same answer given in both accounts. Where are you staying? Where is Jesus? And we see the same response. Rabboni, Rabbi. And we even see John's translated here, which means teacher. Those are the only two places in John's Gospel where he translates the word. John 1 and John 20. And yet, there's this contrast between John chapter 1 and John chapter 20. In John chapter 1, Jesus says, come, stay with me, follow me. And what does he say to Mary in John chapter 20? Do not cling to me. That's sort of odd. He told the disciples in John chapter 1, come, stay with me. And he says to Mary, don't cling to me. Why is this? Why is he saying to Mary, don't cling to me, don't hold on to me? And he gives her the answer. He says, I have not ascended to the Father. That he's not putting restrictions on Mary's physical touching of him. He's saying, I have to ascend. I have to go to the right hand of the Father so I can pour out my spirit. That this earthly communion is only temporary. But the communion that we will receive by the Spirit is eternal. It's lasting. He says to his disciples in another place, it's better that I go so that I can send the Spirit. And so we see in this passage that Jesus is this ladder. He's the one that Jacob saw, this access point between God and man, the true stairway, the gate of heaven, the one mediator between God and man, fully God, divine, fully man, human. That he is the true Bethel, the dwelling place of God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, on whom will be given a kingdom that will not pass away. That in Christ, God came down to his people. That what happens in every other religion, think of any other religion you can think of. Doesn't matter if it's Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, it's all about how can I work my way up to God? How can I do enough good things? just like we saw in Babel this morning. Can I do enough? Can I work my way up to God? And we see that Christianity is wholly different. In Christianity, God comes down in the form of Christ. And not only does he come in the person of Christ as a man, but he ultimately descends even to the heart of the earth, to the place of the dead. And he stays there for three days, but he will ultimately not only have a resurrection body, but he ascends again to the right hand of the Father, where he pours out 
His Spirit. And that, as we read in our catechism this morning, that even if we have doubts, even if we have sin, even if we have areas of our life where we're like, I'm not sure, Lord, maybe I'm too sinful. Can God really save me? Read the question that we read this morning. How can I be made right with God? It's by faith. It's by trusting in Christ, in the Son of Man, the one, the true, the latter, that connects us to God. And so may this morning, may we have faith in this Christ, in this one to come. May we not look to try to build our way up to God, but may we see in the person and work of Christ that he's come down for us and for our salvation, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John, and that that if we're honest with ourselves, we're often a lot like these disciples. That maybe with our mouths we can confess great things about Christ, but yet our hearts often betray us. That we struggle with sin, with doubt, with worry, with anxiety. And yet, in Christ, you tell us to come and be comforted. That it's not about our works. <laughs> that we cannot work our way up to you, that Christ has come as the true Son of Man to do what we could not, to lead us to God, this access point between God and man, the one mediator between God and man. So this morning, may our trust and hope be found in Him, and may we be changed as we behold Christ from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So we come now to a time in our service where we're reminded of this sacrifice of Christ. That, as John said in this passage, behold the Lamb of God. That Christ is the true Passover Lamb whose blood was spilled that the death might pass over us. And so we're reminded this morning that this Lord's Supper that we're about to partake is for believers. It's for those that have had the blood of the Lamb on their door by faith. That it's not about those that have worked enough, that are good enough morally or externally, worked their way up to God. It is for those that have admitted that they cannot and said, I need a better Savior. That I cannot save myself, that I need Christ. So, as we've said many times, this is not a meal for the strong but a meal for the weak, ones that have seen their need and turned to Christ. So if you're not a believer, if your faith isn't in Christ, then we ask you not to come. Paul has strong language for those that eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And so we would ask that you come confessing your sin, acknowledging that you've messed up this week, this month, this year, and be specific about those things, examining yourself, to see whether you're in the faith, but ultimately not to stay there, to not to stay in despair, but to rejoice that Christ has come, he's paid for our sins, he's made a way by his blood, our sins are atoned for. And we're reminded of our Lord's words on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you, do this 
in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That this is not just a remembering, but it's a proclaiming. It's a means of grace by which God's people are fed spiritually by Christ. So may we remember that this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this communion. This Lord's Supper, whereby we're reminded not only of our communion with one another, believers in Christ, but our communion with the triune God. Help us this morning to come acknowledging our weakness and yet seeing the strength of our Savior. Would you take these common elements behind me and consecrate them, use them for your holy purposes that we might be fed this morning by faith, by the body and blood of Christ. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So if you'll come, we'll form a line, take the elements back to your seat, and we'll partake of them together. to take this every week. So we're reminded each week to take the bread, to eat it, to remember, and to believe, to have faith that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins.
And in the same way, we take the cup this week of grape juice, <laughs> and we're reminded that each week to take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's blood was spilled to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. Amen. If you want to stand with me this morning, we'll respond to God out of gratitude, in song, maybe with, yes, Jesus loves me. Actually, we'll be singing, <laughs> must be another room or something. <laughs> Sorry about that. We'll just have to sing loud. Okay. If you want to turn to hymn number 216, we'll sing Solid Rock.
out of gratitude for what God has given us, graciously give a portion of that back to him for the purposes of his kingdom and his gospel. So we will now collect our tithes and offerings. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the great provision that you've given us. In many ways, they're countless. Your mercies are new. Every morning we receive grace upon grace in so many ways. And out of worship for all that you've done, we give a part of that back to you. Not because you need it, not because you're poor and need our money, Lord, but because you call us to do this so that we might be sanctified and you might be glorified. So help us this morning, Lord, to trust in you. And may you use these gifts, these humble gifts, for the growth and advance of your kingdom throughout the ends of the earth. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, from Psalm chapter 2. Now therefore, O kings, be warned. Be wise, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Grace and peace as you go this morning. 